Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back with another episode. Just so people know, I've been sick. This is like the flu game for me, Michael Jordan's flu game, just <laughs> sick and doing podcasts anyways. So uh, just so you know, if you hear me like sucking on a, what are these things called? Like a, a cough, uh, what are those called? Cough drops. Little cough drop. Yeah, if you hear me sucking on a cough drop, I'm sorry. Uh, I got throat coat here, and uh, and so I'm trying to. Do, I do it for the for the people. Okay. The anyways, um, we are gonna kind of. We got an email from a listener. I hate, by the way, I don't think we should use his actual name. Maybe we no, should. No, we're just not call going to. Okay, good. We're gonna call him. Yeah, we'll call him John. Uh, we got an email from a listener. Uh, about when Nick and I did our podcast on Israel, we talked about Israel and uh, the conflict in Israel and, and what's happening over there. Nick and I had our opinions. We discussed them. Uh, this guy sent an email in kind of refuting some of those opinions and just giving his take on it and uh, asked yeah. him if it's okay for us to do a podcast just yeah. to discuss these things. And he said, that's all good. So this is a guy that we know. That I, I, I don't know. Pastored. You know. I yeah. pastored him for a number of years. He got married in our church and he right now is, I'm just going to say serving in one of these Arab dominated countries immediately mm. adjacent in mm -hmm. the region. Let me just say it that way. We're, we're trying to be vague on purpose here, right? <laughs> right. Um, he's a great guy. He's mm. for Jesus sake, he's given his life to serve the people in that country mm. um, with his very young family. So this is a guy who is, has definitely put his money in his life and his blood where his mouth is, has endangered his wife and, is raising his kid among these Arab peoples. So this is somebody who like is definitely doing the work of Jesus. And so um, whatever we say about his opinions, this is a right. guy that I enormously right. respect. And yeah. I want to, I want to speak about his words very respectfully because this is a guy who deserves to critique me and Andy because he like, this is a guy who's doing the stuff. So even though some of the stuff I'm not going to just accept and be like, yeah, I agree. I, some of the stuff I think we'll interact with. Um, I, I do want to, I do want to say this, that, that this is a guy who like, Mm -hmm. is living among Arab peoples. He has put his money in his life and his wife's life where his mouth is. And mm -hmm. I have a lot of respect for him and his belief in the gospel and in Jesus. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know him, but obviously all that's true. So it's, so, you know, we'll, we'll keep it, uh, you respect as respectful as we can, obviously. And so, yeah. okay. But before we get into talking about that email, um, uh, I did a podcast that was released the first week of January on intimacy with Christ with Tom Flaherty is a senior pastor at city church in Madison. Mm -hmm. Um, he's charismatic. He's evangelical charismatic, right? That's, that's what he's, uh, and, uh, you know, so we thought he's got, he comes from a particular pers perspective as far as how the, the kind of the focal point of Christianity, he says, is kind of finding intimacy with Christ. And I think a lot of good things are said, and it's obviously really good. Nick, you said you wanted to kind of talk about this a little bit before we get into the email. And and so, I guess, you just have thoughts. This, just this is, I think that some of these, these um, podcasts we have with other theologians and people are worth like kind of recapping and yeah, like, right, right. like emphasize, emphasizing the good. I, I mean, I think Tom's a great guy to have talk about intimacy with God. He is, he is right. It is his one thing. I've been in a number of different places with him speaking mm -hmm. and this is what he talks about. Um, not just if he gets one sermon, but if he gets five sermons, it's the other <laughs> all somehow about intimacy with God. Right. Also, I, I want to say that when I was with him in India and uh, it was kind of exhausting, like he did exactly what he said on that thing in his hotel room. 
he found some coffee somewhere. He was in his pajamas mm-hmm. with his notebook, reading his Bible and mm-hmm. spending time with the Lord. So I, th- I think that like, like I will, I sometimes I quibble with Tom and there, there are things where like, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't say it that way. You know, Tom and I have slightly different perspectives, but um, in terms of somebody who's actually pursuing intimacy with the Lord um, in a regular disciplined, non, not just emotional way, but in a very mm-hmm. relational way, uh, Tom is, is really in disciplined ways, very um, authentic. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think, th- I think some of the points that you were talking about that um, in a culture that, that has struggles with the concept of intimacy, Seeing yeah. intimacy with God as one of the, mo- the most fundamental things about our relationship with God is difficult for people. I, I also, I've been reading a bunch of books on the effects of technology on people right now and um, having all positive, right? All yeah, positive. they're all positive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, but one of the things uh, in the book Irresistible, which is one of the books kind of in this line that was published in 2017, one of the things that it was already kind of coming out at that time was that um, if you if you don't think in terms of spirituality, one of the things that might be the worst off is intimacy mm. that like people weren't forming friendships very well already. And partly because the basic biological feedback of intimacy was being cut out of friendship. Like for example, we have no idea how much eye contact matters to us. Mm-hmm. And even on zoom, like you and I are on zoom right now, like mm-hmm. we're probably not going to make eye contact. I can see you and you can see me, Yeah, but we're not really going to actually make eye contact. You can't. Because I have to look at my camera to look like I'm making eye contact, right? I'm doing I'm looking at mine right now. Yeah. So it looks like so, you're making eye contact with me yeah. if I look at you on the screen, but you're not, right? <laughs> no, and I, and not, I also right. kind of know that. So there's that, that friendship, that biofeedback that doesn't happen, right? And then and then um, the next thing that doesn't happen is actual the actual act of sex. Like people mm-hmm. don't negotiate flirting and all that kind of stuff to have sex with each other. But even worse than that is that sex is not intimate and the intimacy in relationships seems to be highly inhibited. Mm-hmm. And so people don't really conceptually understand intimacy and they're also in many cases not even experiencing it and so this idea that like intimacy the mingling of souls in the actual experience of union in the psychology of another person as one of the most enjoyable things a human being can experience they don't have a category for it yeah i would say they haven't had it with their parents right they haven't really had it with anybody else they even haven't haven't even had it in a tawdry way not Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. codependency is the closest thing they've experienced to it right right I was going to say, let, let me which say Which is this. a monstrosity of it. It's similar, yeah. but it's it's also like, yeah, like a zombie is similar to a person. Right, right. There's, you know? I feel like over the past several decades, as all of human relationships have continued to be degraded down to what is, what is sexual about them. So all, all, everything, like everything within friendship, marriage, uh, whatever, coworkers uh, in society those relationships that used to be multifaceted and, and dynamic and there's all, there's all these different ways of describing them. They've all been degraded down to only sexual and, and really only the, what did you say? Like the, the animalistic version of sexuality, the, the dehumanized version of sexuality. And so because of that, even intimacy, which maybe is, should be recognized as a, much broader multifaceted, like you could be intimate with your friends. Well, now people recognize intimacy as only being something that can be had within a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, but nobody, that's still uncomfortable because most people haven't even engaged in, in it with a sexual relationship. So it's been, now right. it's just like, that's even uncomfortable for people because they're like, oh, intimacy is just for like, like people who are sexually active with each other. 
but actually what it's what it's meant for is a lot more than that but because we've degraded sex down to this animalistic power game that nobody can actually see how (laughs) intimacy works within sex much less how it can work within friendship or coworkers and things like that yeah i think one of the reasons for this is because we have sought to disconnect sexuality from commitment right yeah right right and loyalty and intimacy is the experience of the mingling of souls that longs for stability and loyalty. Mm-hmm. As G.K. Chesterton said, um, if we had, if the concept of marriage had never been invented and a man came to love a woman, meaning in, intimate, in intimacy, mm-hmm. he would have to invent marriage because he would seek for ways to make promises to her. Because right. real intimacy produces loyalty, right? Mm-hmm. And loyalty and that kind of commitment, commitment where you lose the choice to sever the relationship. Right. Like you can't just break the relationship Mm -hmm. and walk away from it. Like the texting culture and the social media culture is just like, if I don't want to talk to you anymore, I just stop texting you. I just leave your message unread or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we're done. I can control that. In intimacy, you can't control it. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't, I have an intimate relationship with my kids. That's not sexual. Right. But it's intimate. That is, we have a union together, hopefully that I will enjoy, but I can't break it. I have a bond with them. Mm -hmm. Right. Similarly with my wife, when I came to be intimate with her, in under Jesus economy, that also meant that I, I created a permanent loyal bond with her. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that David says in second Samuel, when Jonathan dies, is he says, John, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, you were dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman, which mm-hmm. has led some modern interpreters to say, well, clearly they were gay. Mm-hmm. Right. But it also shows that many of the modern commentators don't know what friendship is. Not on that level. And and when you read about Jonathan and David's friendship, one of the reasons it was better than the love of a woman is because Jonathan risked his life to save David's life many times, even in the face of his own father. So like part of what made David's relationship with Jonathan so lovely is that not only that they could cry together, but that Jonathan put his life on the line for David to save his life. That like that level of loyalty, the certainty that you had that the other person would always act for your will, even to endanger their own life. Hmm. was that it was at the very bottom of this concept of real loyal intimacy. And so this idea it has been just really, really undermined in the lives of people. And so even when we talk about intimacy with God, you're right that the concept is both is both eviscerated and sexualized. Right. And so it's really weird for people to try to get it because some people have literally never experienced it. Yeah. Or, but what I would say for a lot of those people yeah. is you actually can experience it with God first. And that could lead you to actually begin to experience the real thing with other people. But it's harder because the concept is so foreign. Right. I I was going to say that um, as I've been reading through, which I think we should do one of our book studies on a J.I. Packer book. I got a couple in mind, but um, I've been reading through all of his books because Mike Woodruff Yeah, and especially because his books are so boring, but they're so good. Turning I don't them think into podcasts. Boring. I think, I think are so like good. could be fun. Yeah, I, they, they oh, might man. be boring. I find his books. I mean, oh my gosh! Seriously, so I've read through like four of them in the last boring. couple of months. I just can't stop. I maybe want more maybe the ones you're reading are different. I haven't read. I've only read a couple of his books. Which one? But I thought Knowing God was like incredibly boring. I haven't read that one yet. So, anybody, anyways, I was going to say like the um, so so one of the things that J.I. Packer talks about. So, for people who might, might like, you know, I as I was thinking through this. 
uh, you know, intimacy is an interesting word and you can use that. And that's a good way of thinking about it. The way J.I. Packer describes it is just like about your affections, your heart's affections and how they, in what way they should be pointed. Or when I read through J.I. Packer explaining our affections, turning our affections towards Christ, that's kind of when it clicked for me, even though Tom had been telling me the intimacy for a long time. And I think one of the reasons was that the intimacy thing was so connected to sexual sexuality that I didn't really fully have an understanding of how to connect it to uh, my relationship with God. And so the affections mm-hmm. thing helped me. And it's essentially the same concept. It's just under two different words. Uh, yeah. 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 So, okay. So can I break that down a little bit? Yeah, I think ahead. that those are two different things, but they're highly related to each other. Right. So no, I'm not in, saying they're the same. Th- I right. get, yeah, go ahead. But yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're deeply related because, because intimacy with God is part part of what recognizes that feelings and enjoyment are fundamental to our existence. Mm-hmm. Like God made us to be happy. Yeah. That's a feeling, not a thought. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's so in some ways, like we think of feelings as like not as having the same kind of authority mm-hmm. as reason, if we can understand something to be reasonable, but right. they have at least as much purpose. Like God's purpose for us was not just that we would be capable of rationality, but that by acting in accordance with reason toward blessing, we would be happy. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, a lot, a big part of that would be through intimacy. That is knowing God and being known by him. Yeah. So intimacy in some sense is the loyalty generated in the mingling of souls in which two persons are in, are intimate with each other. That is they're, they're highly vulnerable right. in mutual enjoyment, yeah, mutual connection and mutual loyalty. And the, the reason why affections are fundamental to this is that not only does intimacy fuel a heightened level of affection and the enjoyment that comes from having those affections. But affection is the gift you give in the context of intimacy. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like what, like what, like if I come home to my wife, who I'm intimate with, right. As in, in our relationship, what I want to give her in that intimate space is affection. Yeah. Right. 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 And so in that sense, Christians would say like having your devotions and spending time with God is both right. building your affections and expressing yeah. them. Intimacy. Yeah. Like worship is expressing affections, mm-hmm. trying to hear from God through his word or through other, other mm-hmm. sorts of things in which God says stuff to us is to receive his, uh, his affection in, mm-hmm. in truth. Right. Right. So yeah. I think that, and yeah, so it's pursue intimacy without pursuing an increase in affection is just poor. And so I think one of the things that Puritans got it, cause mm-hmm. they use that, that language of affection the most, yeah. it's most right. associated with usually with Jonathan Edwards yeah. is that it was your job to mm-hmm. build your affections. Yeah. Right. And so for people who had faith in God and were committed to him, they believed they had that kind of intimacy. Yeah. What was often missing was the goodwill, the taking pleasure in the other person, the cheerfulness, mm. the, 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 the positive life-giving affections. And what, what, one of the things that Tom was also right about besides that this is important and that's the one thing is also that it's, it's kind of rooted in something like surrender. Right. Mm, And and that's one of the reasons why it's both, it's, it's like, it has similarities to sexuality, though it's not sexual. Hmm. Like sexuality has built into it, uh, like profound physical vulnerability, especially for women, but for both. Right. It's the most vulnerable action a female human does. Right. Hmm. And in so doing, she receives the other person closely. There's an intimate relationship. And like, like the, the illustration he gave about the horse, like basically he just fought this trainer until the horse Mm -hmm. was like, okay. And then he followed him like that, that surrender, like you are for my good. Mm -hmm. And so I can open my heart to you and you're not going to hurt me. Like I can just be who I am and I can just receive who you are. And it doesn't have to be mediated through the politics of calculation. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's gone. 
Um, and there's a freedom that exists in that space of intimacy right, as well. Right. That's supposed to exist between us, us and God. It's supposed to exist between us and lovers. It's supposed to, be able to exist between us and actual friends. And I think yeah. that there's plenty of people right now who don't have a friend that that's true of. No. Yeah. Like nobody. I mean, it's like, and it's hard because, you know, there's been a lot of friends of ours, Andrew and I being young and in this generation who is just all jacked up. Like it's really difficult to develop friendships without virtue, without a, without a mutual commitment to, to virtue or to Christianity. It's really hard. And so what you end up having is young people. I see, I mean, I've, dozens of examples of this of young people who you think they're your friend and then you'll find out that they've just been lying to you like they just lie to you constantly and like there's no respect or mutual uh care or whatever there's no higher thing that either person is called to and so because of that what ends up happening is that you you one your friendships fall apart immediately but two the, the the friendship is only there as a means to to I don't really know a means to just get something out of the other person or yeah. something like that. I don't even really it's know what the instrumental. Is. Yeah. It's so stupid though. It's such a oh. waste of time. People do that for freaking years. And they, and, and then when you're on the receiving end of it and you realize that your friendship has been alive for two years or six months, you're like, Oh, I feel like an idiot. And then you never yeah. want to talk to anybody ever again, because if you open back up, it's going to happen again. And I think my yeah. generation is, like the top of the, like they do this all the time and there's, it's, yeah. I don't know how they, well, what it, you it is it. partly a result of the technopoly, like mm-hmm. the, all of the things in which we relate through really like a feed into the fleshliness of that. And it's yeah. really hard to avoid that. I, you know, who experiences this a lot is pastors wives. I'm sure politicians yeah. wives yeah. also experience yeah. this, but any like situation where your spouse is in a position of what is perceived to be power mm-hmm. or influence Oftentimes, right. like that spouse is just trying to mind their own business, but they become instrumental for somebody else trying mm-hmm. to get closer to that seat of power influence. Exactly. And I, like I've heard my own wife just be like, uh, yeah, this person came talk to me. They want to get together. And I'm like, you're going to get together? She's like, no, I'm just a, I'm just a tool to them. Like I, I, I know what's happening. Like it, mm-hmm. they're going to step on me to step beyond me. And, and, and also some people, and sometimes people don't even realize they're doing it because they're not deliberate enough about friendship to understand. And yeah. so we've had people. Um, come to, uh, into our lives intentionally for a period of time, something resolves for them and then they just disappear. Huh. And I, so I just accept that as like par for the course, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. But it's um, still messed it, up. I mean, it can I think be really tough are... if you're that woman and right. you're trying to make girlfriends in a church and it's hard being the pastor's wife and so on. Yeah. I, I don't get how people, I don't know when it's going to fall apart. I, I mean, I think that you're right about the technology thing because the thing that I've noticed most is that when when you start out, whatever, at 14, 13, 12, kids my age are getting smartphones at that, at that range and um, you're living two completely different lives on your phone and then on mm-hmm. real life. And in, in real life, you literally every word that comes out of your mouth is a lie because it's not who you are behind closed doors. It's not who you are on your phone. And so like, I, I know that everybody that I grew up with, that, like we all lied to our parents, to our teachers, about everything all the time, constantly. And everybody knew that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like when you become, you know, that's why I've been saying, get off social media. If you're a Christian, like just get off of it because that's the, you can, like, it's a double, it's inherently, a double. you cannot live a genuine life on like Facebook. It's like, it's meant for you to lie. 
our life is this way. It's like per, it's you're, it's a lie. The whole thing it's is too a lie. easy. I think because like I think I mean I think there are people there are people who I look at their Facebook just to see what their kids are looking like these days. But but like, yeah, like these yeah. these technologies are set up to tap into our emotions of that are perverse incentives for these. Well, things yeah. I, what I mean by a lie is that you only share the things that are good, which isn't real. So if you only share the things that are good and only show the things that are good, it creates a false narrative about your life, which to me is a, is a lie. It's an intentional lie. Why don't like nobody's posting yeah. like, Hey, my Framing. husband and I, or my wife and I, uh, you know, screamed at each other for three hours last night. <laughs> we like hate each other's guts. Nobody's saying that. Right. Okay. So it's a, it's a complete and total lie and it's a fantasy. And when that becomes yeah. uh, intertwined with your real life, it, yeah. you're trying to maintain both of those things. What you end up doing is you're going to like the thing that seems easier and makes people think more highly of you. And okay, so let me gonna, ask you this. Yeah. Do you think that photo albums are lies? No, but the, because photo albums aren't for the purpose, 99.9% of photo albums aren't for the purpose of, of um, they're sentimental for the people involved in the photos. So if I think about like when I was growing up, we, my grandma would take pictures of us all the time and then she'd create scrapbooks. And then we would all in my family look back at those scrapbooks and remember the, that trip or we went to Florida or something like that. And that was for the immediate, the people who are immediately uh, involved in that scenario. Whether so, if somebody like took one of your one of your photo albums and just put those pictures on Facebook, that would be a lie. I, I have a hard time understanding why anybody would want four hundred people to see that. It one, it mm -hmm. takes away the intimacy. It's another perversion of intimacy because if I go on, if you and I go on a trip and we, and, and we take picture together um, and that was something that we shared as friends. And then I go and I try to share that with everybody else who wasn't involved. It, there's some, uh, there's a bit of that that I think can be okay, but it's like, the question is why, like who cares that you mm -hmm. went on a trip with your family other mm -hmm. than your family? Who freaking cares? Now share with grandma and grandpa or send a, a text or whatever. But why does everybody that you went to high school with? Well, the reason is because you're insecure and you're trying to f search for dopamine hits and validation from people that really don't mean anything to you. But you think that they do because you're friends yeah. with them on Facebook because you've got such shallow view of friendship and relationships. And so I don't I don't know. OK, I, I want to say two things about this. The first is, is a while ago you said that people were living a total double life. And so their life was a lie because they had a double life on their phone. One of so them was I, a lie. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that I would want to massage that a little bit and say, it's reasonably likely that there is truth in both of those lives. The lie is in pretending yeah. you don't have the other life. Exactly. That's what I'm right? saying. I agree. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so like if you're a teenager and you have like, all this porn on your phone. Yeah. Right? right. And you go to youth group on Wednesday and you right. sing worship songs. Don't, I don't want you to take that kid to take from what you said that the true them is the porn watcher and not the one who sings to Jesus. What do you what think about is a that, person though? who's two people and though they've, and those two people are not compatible and that's probably creating stress in that person's life. And like, really like they realize those two things should not go together. But I wouldn't want to say that, I don't want to, I don't want, I want to want to say like the real you is this, this one over here in the darkness. I would say, no, you have a, you have a dark self and then you have this other self. And let's ask some questions like, is the part of you that sings to Jesus singing to Jesus?
Okay. Or is that a show? Or well, not? Are, are you, do you have the porn because you can't make yourself stop doing it where you are right now and you just haven't succeeded, you keep falling back into it? Or are you cherishing that in the darkness and then pretending about Jesus in the open? Is that what's happening? Or like, I would want to like work through that. Cause what I want them to say is be like, is cause like, I remember like when I was in my teenage years, I, w- I wasn't using porn and stuff, but I was dating as many girls as would go out with me. And like I was engaging in physical one or two, right? stuff with me, with them, not to the point of actual intercourse, but like yeah. enough to act like that I sexually, they sexually belonged to me. Right. Yeah. And right. then I was a Christian and I did Christian stuff. And I thought that that was sufficiently mm-hmm. working together because I wasn't having sex. Right. And that like, I didn't feel good about it, but mm-hmm. over time what had to happen is I had to feel that those were incompatible, mm-hmm. that I was, I was, I was living kind of two different lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to pick one. I couldn't have them both ultimately. Mm-hmm. And one had to conform to the other ultimately. And which one was I going to pick? And ultimately, like Jesus won me over, right? And right. so I, th- I think it's important that like a lot of younger people, especially in a pornified technopoly culture, mm-hmm. are going to have been sucked into a number of like online kind of like technology driven brain hacking crap. And they're going to feel like right. powerlessly connected to it. And they're going to be like, but I, I actually believe in Jesus too. And I just suck at it. Right. I don't want them. If, if, if you're listening, you're like that person, like don't give up the, you believe in Jesus part. No, like, I don't want them to that's give that not up, very but... strong right now. Apparently that's not strong enough, but like, yeah. th- that's not the wrong part. Right. I, and so I yeah, you've got that. two lives and you can't, you can't, you don't, you can't get comfortable. The more comfortable you are with the two lives, the worse it is. I, 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 I think I agree pastorally, but I struggle with that theologically. Like look at Isaiah one and it's literally like you, you lift your hands to me with the blood of your enemy. Like it just, your, your lives are, you, you, you act like you love me, you worship me. And this is partially why I get frustrated with the American church in general, because I'm like, and this is why, you know, you you could, I can come down off of this, but it's like, everybody's, I don't know. You've got churches like think about a church that maybe is like a left leaning liberal church. And it's like they're they're worshiping God and singing praise songs every every week. But they've got people there who think that it's right to murder babies or kill babies like mm-hmm. abortion is OK or homosexuality is OK. And it's like I and I look at Jesus teachings, which seem to be uh, there. His teachings are always do this or this. You can't do both at the same time. You have to follow what I say. And if you follow what I say, it means you can't do this thing. And then I look at, and I'm, and it's a high, obviously like everybody's like, yeah, the the standard's high, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. It's a high standard. And, and there's a truth that we won't be like that yet until we die. But I think that a certain level of fear should grip people. Like I was like when I'm in this, like, you know, when I was becoming a Christian again or back even before, like in high school and stuff, and I was doing both things, living both worlds, like there was definitely just this constant fear in me that I was like, oh, I'm doing one thing and, and, and then I'm saying I'm a Christian and there's not enough. There's not, there's so much, the church in America has been like, oh, but God's grace covers that. And I'm like, yeah, uh, does it though? Like, are you Mm -hmm. sure? Are you positive that it's covering your situation? Because if, if you're not positive, because Jesus says, you know, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness for, I never knew you like, you, you know, you prophesied, you know, did all these things in your name. Um, I don't think that the other side of that is preached enough pastorally. Like, 
are you really, you know, if you're, if you're watching porn all night and doing all this crap and then you go to youth group and you're lifting your hands and worship, like I can tell you as a matter of fact, God hates that. Now the question is, are you genuinely Christian? I, I don't know. And you should figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 so I, yeah, I agree that there's a tension in scripture between presumption around faith and, um, presumption like falling into discouragement yeah and being lost in discouragement because i think a lot of the sensual pleasures that are in competition for our hearts with mm-hmm. christ um especially in a culture where people have been sexually abused with its pornification yeah for sure um yeah i don't i think you want to have the fear of god before your eyes and i think mm-hmm. that we all need to recognize that like if God wanted to explain how our faith isn't faith, <laughs> not really, mm-hmm. he probably could do that for a lot of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, a gracious dependence on him counting as faith. So, I mean, what I, I can just tell you what, like what I experienced in this was the belief that God still loved and cared about me when I was in the midst of those sins, right. that the process of continually coming back in repentance mm-hmm. um, to God and saying what I did was wrong. I should right. never have done that. I'm not even sure why I did it, but I know I did and I chose and I had some volition in it and I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. please forgive me because of what Christ has done. I don't ever want to do it again. Will you please show me the way to do that? And I did not achieve victory immediately, but, but that, I think that that was necessary for my heart, for me Mm -hmm. not to just choose that darkness in the end. So even when I couldn't get free of it, to renounce it every time I did it Mm -hmm. and to say, this is not who I was made to be. This is not what pleases the Lord. This is not going to be my identity. I was wrong to do this. And I'm sorry that I did it. And I, and I acknowledged it every time I didn't just go, well, Jesus has forgiven me. It's fine. Like I went through the process of prayer and repentance and it was pretty humiliating and sometimes very discouraging, mm-hmm. but my faith wasn't discouraged. Like I wasn't ready to let go of Jesus. I was discouraged that I could ever quit any of that right. stuff. Right. But I, I was not discouraged about Jesus because I believe that he, w- he was capable of receiving my repentance because mm-hmm. I was repenting mm-hmm. and I was hoping he was going to help me find a way. And ultimately he did, but yeah, it took some no, time. I, I agree with that. Me. I'm not trying yeah. to just discourage everybody. I'm just saying like, yeah. I think that there's a lot of young people who know that the church's response to problems yeah. like this is going to be kind of what you just said is like, Hey, like, right. and and they know that and they abuse that because, and they think that that's yeah. true about Jesus. And I'm like, look, it is in some ways true about Jesus. Also, it could not be like, like there's, there's some real fact and hardcore evidence in scripture that you, let's say you live your life like that. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but, and, and you know, Jesus will forgive me. And let's say you die and, and they're like, you, like, God is totally justified in throwing you into hell, like totally justified. I'm just saying. Yeah. I think and that I think that, Matthew seven is that really good example of that, right? Where, where right. he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Right. That mm-hmm. like there is, there is something that Tom called intimacy. Yeah. It yeah, is actually right. a necessary part of salvation. Right. Yeah. This is where pietism comes from that like yeah. seeking to be close to God, to know God, not just believe in him, but to believe him and to know who the him is you're believing mm-hmm. personally is critical. I think that's true. Can I, let me just run this past you. Cause I'm, this is, I'm, I, and the reason why I'm trying to like hit on the other side of it that you're trying to hit on is just because I feel like in the last 20 years growing up in the evangelical church, 
some of the bigger churches and evangelical church too, the millennials have really stuck on that side of it. Like, Hey, like we're all sinners, but God's got grace for us. And like, we kind of like, just kind of leave it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I, I can't, I think you can look at it statistically or you can just do the eyeball test and take a look at the church right now. But I think the millennials have been like horrible when it comes to holiness, when it comes to uh, caring about holiness, caring about doctrine, caring about orthodoxy. Like they've, they've done a really good job of getting rid of all of that and trying to just say Jesus's grace will cover everything. So who cares? It's kind of, they've almost become like semi-universalist, which is like an oxymoron, but um, the, yeah. the, the, uh, I think so, there's, I think that there is some truth to that. I, um, yeah. And so I look yeah. at people, like my, my people, my age, and again, I'm like, this is, I just don't get why we wouldn't say the cold, hard truth right out the gate. Instead of trying to do this like vocabulary, like this, this, uh, this um, equivocating vocabulary that like, yeah, you can sin, but you also can't like this, like really confused backwards, upside down rhetoric around salvation and holiness and sanctification you know, there's like 2000 years of really, really good rhetoric around that from really solid theologians Mm -hmm. that we've just kind of thrown out over the last 50 years because it doesn't make us feel good because it's a call to holiness, a call to repentance and a call out of hell into what Christ has for us in heaven and things like that. And those things make people feel uncomfortable, which I think is the primary purpose of them because you should feel uncomfortable in your sin. So I'm trying to find the, and, and it's true what you're saying that, where, where does it say James or John says like, I think it's John who says anybody who says that they're without sin is a liar. And, um, mm-hmm. right. And he, you know, he's talking about sanctification in a way, like how to really know if you're saved. And so he's saying, if you say you're not sinning, well, that's a big problem too. Um, and I'm not trying to be like a Pharisee, but I'm trying to look at this to say, well, what does the Bible literally say about this? And, I I think that a lot of young people have only heard they've heard the few verses and that that have been blown up out of proportion and not heard them in relationship to the other verses that have talked about holiness, repentance, sanctification, uh, sacrifice, whatever those those be. And and so it's a rhetoric thing. Um, I don't know, man. I think that they've caught on to the to the game. I think young people caught on. Like I caught on to it pretty quickly. If I just said all the right things, everybody would agree because nobody was calling me to repentance. You know? Yeah. You're looking something up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, um. One of the verses people like to memorize is the kindness of God leads mm-hmm. us towards repentance, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, um, but Second Corinthians seven ten also says that godly grief produces repentance hmm. and leads to salvation. Yeah. Right. And so it's both true that grieving because you know God hates something that you hmm. did. Yeah. And not because God is hateful. But because the thing you did is hateful, that is mm-hmm. in the, in a rightly calibrated heart, it generates the feeling of hatred, mm-hmm. right? If it, like if you watch a baby dismembered in front of you, if you yeah. don't feel hatred, there's something wrong with you, right? Mm-hmm. You're not an open-minded person and not <laughs> yeah. in a good sense, right? Right. 
And so like when God, it's the Bible says God hates sin, it's because sin is hateful. Mm-hmm. That is it, it, it should be hated. It's the opposite of lovely that we should produce love. Right. And yeah. if you recognize that, what that will bring about in you is a, is grief, a grief that comes from God that you would do something like that. And that leads you to want to flee from that be as far away from it as you possibly can. And it leads you towards repentance, which will lead you to a source of salvation. So it's really good. Right. Right. Um, but there's a worldly grief, it says in the in second half of that verse, that produces death. That is, there's a kind of grief that is a kind of despondency that leads to things like suicide, right? Like, like yeah, the kind of right. de- the kind of sadness or grief that leads to suicide is the wrong kind of grief. But the the grieving person either doesn't know it or they're unwilling to let go of it or whatever right. it is, right? right the right. guy who kills himself because his his fiance leaves him, right? Yeah, that's the wrong kind of grief, right? Grief, you should cry. That's very sad. But to to murder yourself is not the right response to that. It's, a dis- that it's disproportionate and sinful. It's right. both those things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think we we want a theology that's not equivocating, but as actually holds both of these in their proper tension, so that when we stray into sin, we both recognize its hatefulness mm-hmm. that it is it should produce grief in us. We should yeah. grieve that we did it, and right. that that will lead us to repentance and salvation. Yeah. And then similarly, when we've sinned and we're like, "I'm worthless. I suck. God would never love me. He doesn't even want to forgive me. He thinks I'm disgusting." That to be like, mm-hmm. no, 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 God is kind. Right, 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 right. Anybody who'll sure. turn back to him, he's kind right. to. Right, and I'm not trying right. to. You, swing you need the to believe both of those yeah. at the same time. I had to believe yeah. when I would sin that, like, one, this was this was a disgusting thing that I had done, mm-hmm. and that I had hurt somebody, and that it was a hateful thing, mm-hmm. and that I should grieve over the fact that I did it, and mm-hmm. that God would kindly receive me when I acknowledged that and return to Him. And yeah, believe, yeah, knowing both of those things right. deeply, I think is what is the nature of the gospel. With mm. both its law and its grace, yeah. One and if of, you lose either oh, one of those, I just think you get you get I, off into either legalism or license. And I and I think right. you're trying to get on about license, and I think that that's good because we do live in a pretty licentious generation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not trying to swing the pendulum. I'm just aside, saying, aside from the new legalism of progressivism or hyper, yeah, right, right, hyper conservatism, right, um, right. Yeah, I'm not trying to swing the pendulum because I'm just trying to bring light to the other side of it because I think so many people's – the view of Christianity and salvation and sanctification is the licentious – the the license side of it. It's it's just like 80% that, 20% the other thing. The way that I look at it, the the way that you were thinking about it was like one of the reasons why God hates the sin that you've done or that I've done is because he can't – have a relationship with us like it, it, that though his the his hate for that sin is is right producing. in the presence of that sin you can't do that and him be an accomplice to your life right but he yeah and and right. because of that he, he like he grieves or is sad for the fact that he can't have that communion or, or that fellowship with me anymore in that sin without me repenting of it and so mm-hmm. in in understanding the hate for that god hates that sin because he wants to know me more or because he right. wants me to know him more. It's not, he hates that sin because he hates that sin because he hates me. It's, right. it's, it's, it's actually different than that. He's calling me back into that relationship, with it, which is you can ho- you have to hold those things in your head at the same time because, mm-hmm. and be able to be very careful to make a distinction because Satan uses those little vocabulary, those vocabulary lies to get people to think the wrong thing, I think, you know, like. And that, that's why you need both. Cause when you're, uh, you're understanding the kindness of God leads you to not grieve sin. Right. You, well, all you got to do is read scriptures. Like you should grieve sin. 
Mm-hmm. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, if scripture explicitly tells me that's not where that other thought should have gone, it sh- then yeah. that other thought shouldn't have gone there. Like yeah, right. in that way, you're not equivocating. You're actually creating these safe for bookends. And mm-hmm. if your thought goes off one way or the other, mm-hmm. you're wrong. You're right, not putting right. it together right. Right. Does that exactly. make sense? Yeah. All right. We I think we probably need to move on to the Israel thing if we're going to do that yeah, in this podcast. Yeah. Okay. So that was that. Um, all right. So here's but, what we're going to Yeah. So sorry. Just before. So I, mm-hmm. to, to book that up, um, I, Tom is a great person on this. Intimacy with God is a major part of what it means to be a believer. One of the things I think people struggle with at some point, and this might be a good thing for Tom and I to, I don't know if it would be a debate, but maybe discuss is how do you how do you actually interact with intimacy with God? Like what, yeah, yeah. what do you do? What does it feel like? Cause on some level, I think he did answer that. And on another level, I think that's the hardest thing to really answer concretely. And it's the reason why there's so many different kinds yeah. of Christianity. Cause yeah. some people feel like they do it through rituals. Some people do yeah. it through the use of charismatic gifts and their expression, some through reading scripture and preaching and like, and most people yeah. use multiple things that other people use. So, mm-hmm. um, I no, think we got to do that. We got to do that. Cause that's the practical question. Uh, so we'll try to get that set up. Okay. So then next we're going to talk about this email. Um, from John, so from John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So I'm going to kind of read kind of his little introduction here. Uh, yada, yada, yada. He appreciates uh, our discussions. He was very nice. Very nice. He likes mm-hmm. Optive, listens to us. He doesn't always agree, but um, he, he listens so that he can have different perspectives. Yada, yada, yada. Okay. Um, with that being said, I feel like I wanted to chime in a bit on your discussion about Israel on podcast number 87. I completely understand how polarizing this topic has been, and I'll be the first to admit that I am more biased in the other direction, especially because the Palestinians are often the people I'm serving and living among every day of my life right now. Take or leave what I have to say, but I felt led to share and push back on a few things you guys have said. Hopefully we can grow a little bit in understanding and considering the other sides of the issue and continue in love, knowing that they're knowing that there may not be a solution on this side of eternity also. Uh, never mind. Okay. So here's so that he kind of how he started it. Anyways, specifically to your episode on Israel, I know that you did uh, not really get into the theological reasons as to why or why not to support Israel and make or, and and took more of a moral and cultural approach. But I do think that it's hard to do without taking into account the claims and guidance of scripture. The theological arguments for slash against the modern state of Israel are a matter of hermeneutics. And there are things said in the New Testament that I think we can all agree on that must guide the way we look at any and every situation, specifically in this case, the treatment of a foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed. And so he hasn't made a critique yet. I, I think we should talk a little bit about this uh, introduction. couple things. First thing, hermeneutics. Do you want to just give a definition as to what that means? Yeah. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. Mm-hmm. So like, how do you, what is the process by which you interpret one text or another? Yeah. Um, and so, so hermeneutics is the, is the discipline of interpretation within theology. It's of biblical right. interpretation. So I, I'll start here and then you can kind of, and this goes to my argument kind of later on that he, he makes an argument at me and I'll make one back, but um, kind of how I'll start here is by saying we did. So, so he's right that we did take a more moral and cultural approach to the, to the issue rather than like a specifically a theological approach, because I, one of the reasons why I wanted to do that, and maybe we shouldn't have done it this, this way, I still really need to think about it, was just because I feel like people, uh, more conservative Republican Christians support Israel for baseless theological reasons. 
um, that they feel like it's their moral obligation and duty as Christians to support Israel because is because the Jewish people are the chosen people of God, and our job is to unveil whatever and ha- have them know the, the gospel. And so, if we partner with them politi- geopolitically for some odd reason, I think that that's going to help bring them to Christ. Which I, I don't fully see where that logic started or where it ends but i know a lot of christian republican conservative christians who think that um and i don't take that stance i think partnering with israel because as americans we partner with other people who are um who are what words am i looking for partner with other countries and states who are um committed to the western Western canon, Western thoughts, traditions to the Judeo-Christian values. Um, I think that's okay as far as um, finding allies and whatnot uh, geopolitically. But I do, I wouldn't do it just because I think that God has commanded me to be an advocate for America to be in partnership and an a- allied with Israel. So the reason why I didn't want to get into the theological reasons is because I think the I don't find, I think a lot of the theological reasons for, for supporting Israel inherently just because they're Israel are baseless. I don't see them in scripture. So Nick, do you want to go at that maybe? And exp- I, I don't know yeah. if you agree with that or not. So yeah, I there's, know. I think there's a couple things I would say about this. One is I think I would just take out the word new Testament. There are things said in the new sure. Testament. I think we can all agree on and just put in the word scripture mm-hmm. because virtually all of the references to foreigners, widows, orphans, and the oppressed are in the old Testament, not the new. There's extremely limited, uses of those words in the New Testament. They tend to be Old Testament. Now, I think that they're part of natural law and part of the character of God. And I think they're just as true now as they were in the Old Testament. So they're part of New Testament religious faith, right? Doing justice to people and loving others and loving our neighbors. But I just think saying that they're in the New Testament is just not really very accurate. Okay. Mm-hmm. So relative to the question, one of the things to understand in the in the historical stuff in the Old Testament about foreigners in particular is the assumption that foreigners were responsible for just cohesion with the Jewish society. So, so you're saying for- that's true. Hold on. You're saying that's that was a fact of that time? You're that was a that fact was of true. the Old Testament, correct. Old Testament, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. So, so when Israel was told to treat foreigners in a certain kind of way, to receive them in Israel, to let them live among you, all that kind of thing, they were 100% responsible to completely obey the laws of the land under the Torah, and they had the right to go further than that and become Jews. If they just came into the land and obeyed all the laws of Judaism, not necessarily to be Jewish, but all the all the structural laws of the society. Then they were supposed to be treated a certain way. What that okay. what that means is is that the command to receive the foreigner is relative to the foreigner's good faith participation in being received. Does that make sense? So if the foreigner said it's like for for example, let's say you have like a, a just. Palestinian who is being threatened for his life, right? And he wants to come into Israel and and like be in a country where there's a rule of law and he wants to get out of Gaza and he says, please receive me as a foreigner. I want to come right. into the nation. I'll live as an Israeli. I will support this country. I will support its laws. I will treat you justly. Please treat me justly. This person, John, is right. The Christian answer to that is we must receive such a foreigner. Hmm. Okay. However, if the if the foreigners are operating in bad faith relative to the laws right, of the wait, nation. Before you get to the operating in bad faith, let me just make this point. That's, I mean, isn't like 30% of Israel's population are Palestinians? That like, they're, they're not, it's like some huge I don't know percentage. the percentage, but it's 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 a non-trivial percentage, yes. It's a minority, yeah. but it's a non-trivial minority. But it's big. And, and so just to say to begin with, like Israel is literally doing that. 
They're not you know. to a certain extent. Yeah, there were some. Yeah. There were some Palestinians that didn't leave during the Six Day War. So, so part of the issue here is, hmm. the, uh, I think we talked about this last time. A big part of this whole conflict is when you start the clock, right? Yeah. So I was talking to somebody a little while ago and they said, don't you think, Nick, that the Palestinians that left just before one of the wars should have the right to return to their lands? I mean, these are lands that they owned, that belonged to them, right? And it's really hard to say if if I own personal property in a place hmm. and a war is about to happen and I leave and the war happens and after the war I come back, that that land just doesn't belong to me anymore, right? Like that seems weird. And so – but here's the problem. The vast majority of them left – because they were told, leave, we're going to kill all your Jewish na- neighbors, wipe Israel off the faces of the earth. There won't be an Israel. Then you can come back and take this land and your neighbor's land. And the problem with that is this, is that that's an act of treason. So my response to that person was, I absolutely believe that Palestinians should be able to return to their land. And I also believe that as traitors, they could be hanged. Hmm. I mean, both of those are legal. If you want to go by basic legal, normal legal standards, people have the right to possess the land that belongs to them. They also, a country has the right to hang traitors that intentionally act in such a way as to allow their murder, their neighbors to be murdered by foreign people Hmm. so that then those people who are the traitors can come back and benefit from the death of their neighbors, Hmm. which is what happened in a very large percentage of these Palestinian families now up to two generations ago, right? So do you have a right to return? And then my answer is, well, even if you start the clock then, no, unless you return as a traitor, hmm. right? So I think the forfeiture of land is actually a fairly gracious solution. Hmm. Well, you, we're just, you, you, you don't get to come back. You're yeah. a traitor. You have to stay away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, in, in part, this gets back to this issue of the forfeiture. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who've been influenced by, usually it's American liberal theology, which is to say, they believe that the foreigner basically has the same right as the native born person. And you simply have to receive them no matter what. If the foreigner wants to come, you just have to let them come, period, full stop. And there are no other relevant considerations. And that might be correct. It is not biblical. Like if you go with a high context to the context about foreigners in the Old Testament, it's just extraordinarily clear that foreigners are, are required to live as Israelites. To yeah, live for the purposes of Israel, to not undermine the purposes of Israel. And by Israel here, I'm talking about the the ancient nation. I'm not saying that this this necessarily immediately correlates with the mm-hmm. modern nation. But they, 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 they had to come into the nation. And this would be similar to saying our border isn't open. We will receive people who want to become Americans. America means X, sure. Y, Z. If you're willing to live for X, Y, Z, you can be an American. Now, liberals are right when they say, well, if the person if, – if a liberal says, if the person is willing to live for X, Y, Z, then we have to let them in. You can argue that is a Christian view. What you can't argue, I don't think, is that it's consistent with scripture to say you have to let immigrant X in no matter how they feel, what they're going to do, how they respond. Blah, blah. That's just now, not what the Old Testament teaches. Yeah, there's two things I'm thinking right now. That one is that even deeper than hermeneutics. This comes down to what you believe the Christian's purpose is on the earth as it relates to politics, and so you have kind of different streams of that. So one well, that in I this think case, of is, though, what John is quoting is a geopolitical passage in the Old Testament. These right, passages right, 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 that right. talk about foreigners yeah, coming in are right. geopolitical by nature, so they would apply. And what I would say, they apply in the favor of Israel. If, yes. if and only if the foreigners in question 
are acting in bad faith or you believe or have good reason to believe they will act in bad faith relative to what it means to be part of your nation. I want and to I think I think Israel only, has overwhelming evidence that sure. this is the case for Palestinian peoples. Yeah, but I want to add if and only wait, wait, if wait, new- I, I need to finish that sentence. In aggregate. They have okay. overwhelming to believe this is true of Palestinian peoples in aggregate, not okay. individually. Mm-hmm. The problem is there's no way to sort them. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. I don't even agree with it because here's why. Because I don't think that the Old Testament, one, I think that it, that would be true if the Old Testament was our guide for morals. Uh, if if the Old Covenant was uh, was still valid, I would say, fine. We can look at what was happening geopolitically in the Old Testament, take those as implicit or explicit, however you want to look at that, explicit commands for how Christians as Christians as a people should act geopolitically today and do that. The Old Covenant is no longer... it has been fulfilled in Christ and a new covenant yeah, has come. It's very, evident, so, it's, it's very evident that if we were following the Old Testament, that Israel would not be doing enough to kill the Palestinians. Exactly. The standard biblical argument, background right. here is, is that when people attack mm-hmm. God's people in the Old Testament, God unleashes them in battle and gives them victory. Usually that victory is annihilating. Mm-hmm. And yeah, God is usually yeah. upset with them if they don't. Right. And, and so th- this gets back at like our that our view of the Old Testament law is too simplistic, right? That like we're like, oh, look at the foreigner thing and look at the, mm. and like that's right. That's actually correct. But it's also true that when when nearby neighboring nations sought to attack and subjugate mm-hmm. Israel, God unleashed them militarily against those nations mm-hmm. in ways that were catastrophic, partly because if you th- that was the only way to handle geopolitical politics without like a lot more things going on, right? In the in the Old Testament, like yeah. if you were fighting somebody, you another nation, you would fight them to annihilate them. Not because you want, quote, wanted to commit genocide. That you're like, well, we don't want there to be any more Aramites. No, the reason you would try to wipe out the Aramites is because whatever you left was going to come back and kill you the next year or the right. next generation. Mm-hmm. And so okay. if you didn't wipe them out, yeah. you were yeah. submitting yourself to an eternal conflict. Right. Which which is in the Old Testament. Think about this. In the, By the time you get to the book of Esther, Right. Haman, we're told what line he's from, right? There is a king that the Israelites were supposed to kill when they came across the land, King Agag, and they didn't kill him. Mm-hmm. And he got away, and some of his line apparently got away before mm-hmm. um, Samuel kills him, right? And yeah. because somebody in his line lives, Haman, it says he's an Agagite. That is, yeah. he is a descendant of this man. And now, because they wiped out his people, mm-hmm. he tried to contrive a way in Babylon to wipe out all of the Jews to kill all of them. Right. Right. And so this kind of, this kind of back and forth. And then in the book of Esther, the resolution the Jews get is not just that they're not killed. If you read the book, mm-hmm. but that all through the Babylonian empire, everybody who wanted to kill the Jews and who was related to Haman were all killed mm-hmm. because part of the old Testament and ancient world structure was, yeah, you you don't leave your enemies alive. Okay, but let me make a let me make so okay. So the reason I don't think we're thinking deep enough here's why. I think all you're saying is fine, but and I I'm don't. Not, by the way, let me just be clear. I'm not saying that that's what Israel should do. No, no. And this gets back to how do we interpret right. the Old Testament now? Yeah, that's my that's my right. whole thing is that it, that 
the the understanding here is or the question that people need to ask is is the old testament applicable in its morals ethics whatever is that applicable today right. and yes. what is that and what well no let me let me go further because and how okay so here's the example that i'll give is the example of of in the 10 commandments you have to have a holy day the seventh day is a holy day you must rest on the seventh day and so um like how many christians keep that command as it relates to the Levit- levitical laws that are like you can't even pick up a bundle of sticks but no isn't the question isn't the question how many christians should obey that law yeah how many should obey that law i said how many do how many how many should obey that law my mm-hmm. answer to that after reading and studying through hebrews is you like no that law has been fulfilled through christ in which you believe in jesus and follow him with your life and therefore you now enter into the into the eternal holy day rest and that you live in it it's it's so what what was once what was once uh, the outward-facing moral laws and ethics of the Old Testament now become an inward-facing, inward-facing moral laws and ethics of Christ, in which you follow Him, put your faith in Him, and He has fulfilled those laws of the Old Testament, so that you can live in the fulfillment of the law, rather than you trying to fulfill the law on your own. And that's why we don't need—we're not commanded in the New Testament to take. Uh, a holy day. I mean, literally in Mark, Jesus starts talking about this in like chapter two, in which they're they're do, you know picking wheat. The the apostles are picking wheat or whatever, right? And then they're like, "Oh, you guys are working on the Sabbath." And Jesus is like, "Yeah, but didn't he he referenced back to um what did he reference back to Jacob or sorry uh, David and his men." Um. Okay. Oh wow. Okay, we'll have to do more on this later. But yeah. but do you know what I'm talking about? He referenced yeah. back to to David and his men going into the holy. What was it? What right. was the reference? Going into the holy yeah, he place. Ate the holy bread. Mm-hmm. They, they ate the holy bread because they were hungry. And he, and then he's like, isn't the purpose of these commandments and laws are for something that you people don't yet understand because Christ hadn't fulfilled what he was going to fulfill on the cross. And so the 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 deeper question here is one. How to interact with the Old Old Testament as it relates to morals and ethics. Two, how do we relate to that on a political landscape within our sovereign state that we live in? And then three, how do we interact with that on the on the geopolitical landscape and level, which are all three completely different questions that you have to have like a full you have to have like a pretty deep theological conviction in one way or the other uh, because you have resident alien, which argues one thing. That's a book you have Deneen's post-liberal, you know, the post uh, why liberalism failed the post-liberal order. Um, and then you, you have, you know, J.I. Packer wrote a really good article on Christianity today and on, on how this should all work out. But I don't feel like it's so simple as to just look at the old Testament and say, Hey, look, this is what they did. Therefore we should do it. It's like, well, the, no, the, I, don't, I don't. I don't either. But what I'm saying is, is that when somebody says, "What about the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed?" Right? Foreigner. They're appealing to an Old Testament logic, right? And so the question is, yeah. okay, is that do we just say that's Old Testament and it's not reiterated very much in the New Testament? We throw it out. I don't think so. I think so. The way this has happened historically is people have said the character of God is expressed in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but it's expressed relative to the situation in context so that God is sometimes making a divine accommodation to very unideal situations because of the situation that exists. And so even though God is morally perfect, there is no morally perfect command, right? You can't say, well, well, I'll, instead of doing X, do Y because Y is morally perfect. Well, in some situations there isn't like slavery is a good example in the old Testament. Like why does God just outlaw slavery? Well, slavery is also social security in the old Testament. 
right? Like it's also you, categorically different than what it is today. I mean, it literally was was in chattel slavery. Yes, yeah, but but like the, the but if the, somebody says, well, yeah, but it's still slavery. Why doesn't God just outlaw it? And the answer is, well, because slavery was what happened if you were an incompetent person instead of you starving to death or falling into robbery and then being killed and having your hands cut off and so on. If you couldn't if you couldn't manage your own life, sl- what happened is you would fall into debt. And somebody else would be put in charge of you to manage your life. That was called bond servitude or slavery. And that was actually necessary for a lot of people to survive. Mm -hmm. And it was how you dealt with things like social security need, Mm -hmm. like a bunch of things structurally. And because there weren't other democratic or modernistic or industrialized mechanisms, something was necessary, had to be necessary to make that happen. And that's why clans existed and certain kinds of extended families and so on. They were absolutely necessary. So there are ways in which God divinely accommodates. He's like, given the situation Mm -hmm. you're in, this is what you're going to do. But that doesn't mean you don't change it later. Mm-hmm. Right. So like in the right. New Testament, you can tell Paul believes that slavery has is has already started to die. It mm-hmm. can't exist among brothers in the in the faith, right? And yet he he even accommodates it in the New Testament for a little while, right? So I think it's so when somebody quotes the Old Testament to me relative to the foreigner, I say, okay, if we're gonna do that, let's first look at the Old Testament passage on the terms you're using it. I would argue with John on the terms he's using the issue of the foreigner, which is the main question relative to the to the Palestinian, the Old Testament context is clear that the foreigner it has to be become added into Israel, obey its laws, do what it's supposed to do, live in accordance with them, and it, in, including its religious dynamics. And so if you look at the Old Testament in its context, yes, foreigners have to be received into Israel, but on certain assumed terms. Otherwise, yeah, the foreigner right. is supposed to be enslaved or killed or ejected from the society. And if you follow that consistently, mm-hmm. Israel in this modern moment is vastly underdoing what the Old Testament would accommodate. So I don't think we can appeal to that Old Testament ethic or a New Testament version of that ethic to say we should treat the Palestinians differently. Now, maybe biblically we should. I'm just saying you don't get it from those passages. Yeah, and I'm fine with that. I just don't get why you would give why why we would say that. I just don't view it as a as a full on legitimate argument because I think that it assumes way too much about what we should should and shouldn't follow uh, in the Old Testament, like what we should yeah. and shouldn't believe about the Old. But Testament. But I do think you have to answer that question, and I think that you have to understand that in the Old. Can Testament- you answer it by saying that's a bad question? Because the like for the the exact reasons that you just gave and some of the reasons that I just gave, like it's not a good question. You're not reading the Old Testament correctly. You're reading it wrong, and so you're you're cherry picking. And I'm not saying you're cherry picking. I don't think this guy's cherry picking, because um, that's like an intentional kind of deception in right. some ways. Because these people, so Palestinians are being treated as foreigners by Israel. Right. Yeah. So, so, so they're seeing is, some is, of the similarities. That if, I get If that, those people yeah. say, please stop treating us like foreigners. Can we be part of your life? Then are you supposed to say yes? Like, aren't you supposed to be inclusive? And mm-hmm. if people have been harmed by the actions of other people in your society and so become orphans or widows, or even if it's because of misfortune, don't we as Christians have a preliminary obligation to them rather than yeah. a negative? Uh, right. And like that ethic is consistent with the ethic of God's character. Old Testament or New Testament, that's valid. The question is, okay, how does that apply to a mass of people, like a whole population of people within a geopolitical context like in Israel and Palestine? And And 
So I think that that ethic holds, but the question is, how do you apply such an ethic? Right. Well, and the New Testament doesn't apply this stuff to nations. It applies this stuff to to the, if you want to apply it to a group in the New Testament, it applies to the the church or to the individual. That's why when, when he says foreigner, widow, orphan, and oppressed, and I'll just take the oppressed out of it because I don't see what we'll, we can discuss that at a different time. But the widow and the orphan, there's very clear guidelines for how we should treat the widow and the orphan in the New mm-hmm. Testament. James is clear. And yet mm-hmm. James isn't talking to the to the nation of Israel or to the to the nation of Christians. He's talking to the individual Christian or the church uh, as an organization and how that that mm-hmm. ethic should proceed down yeah. into the social imaginary of the church at the time or whatever. And so, yeah. So, but so later John argues about, we. so one of the things I said in, in our podcast before was that, um, that foreign aid should probably not have gone to Palestine because yeah, yeah, clearly right. a whole lot of it has been used to dig tunnels and, and create oppression and stuff like that. And I think part of that is this argument that, that the Palestinians are a, they, they, I think, I think John is coming from the pr- perspective that the Palestinians are unjustly oppressed, right? And even if you don't believe they're unjustly oppressed, I think a lot of people would say the Palestinians are are depressed or repressed by some oh. of the controls in Israel relative to them, right? I think they would say there are orphans and widows now created among them. What responsibility do we have? And hmm. in the economic state that they were in, which is like being an orphan or a widow. Don't you think aid actually was good? Maybe we need to track it better. Maybe we need to do some of that. But like giving aid to the Palestinian peoples probably wasn't wrong. Now, I don't agree with that. I, but I do think that is a Christian impulse to say, yeah. wouldn't these ethical things apply to this condition? I think that's very intuitive. I think it could be. I think that's like a – okay. So, so the Christian's responsibility to the widow and the orphan though is – directly related to the church, not to the government. And so th- this is where things are going to get tricky because I'm I'm like, okay, what you think the government should do with tax dollars in a democracy is up to prudence and discernment. Okay. I, I don't think there's anything in the New Testament that gives any sorts of commands. Other than that, if you're a Christian, you should believe this set of morals because Jesus taught them and then your life should proceed out of that. And so you should try to you know, so if you're going right. to vote, you should vote on behalf but of what you think is true about Jesus. Yeah, right? like exactly. All I know. No, I know. Of what is I know. what is politic and well, not politic, but prudential has to come from what a, you think partly an ethical view, right? Yeah, about what Jesus taught. Yeah, right. And so I agree with that. And now, now there's going to be right ways and wrong ways to deal with that. But uh, the United States giving aid to Israel or to Palestine isn't in any way, shape, or form connected to a Christian giving aid to the widow and the orphan. Not Absolutely. in any way? No. You don't, I'm you not don't giving, there's an interpersonal uh, dynamic that always, that inherently exists in James's command to take care of the widow and the orphan. That's why it was commanded to the local churches in their local communities. Okay. It sounds like what you're saying is if John or people thinking along these lines wish to extend the claim that we should help widows and orphans to a geopolitical context, the burden of proof for the extension of that principle is on them. They need to spend some time showing that you can do that, that it's scalable, that you can uh, scale from the church helping a widow to one nation helping another nation. Yeah. 
And, and I want to say that that, that, that that's that that's a moral that's the morally right thing to do. That that Correct. they need to prove that to me theologically and biblically. Case. And and I'm going to help them. You can't. You won't be. You're going to have to create a bunch of extrapolations and go from point A to point C. Dear without- listeners, please write in to explain to Andy why you think that the principle can be extended. I would love to hear it. I would. I really would because I don't think it actually can. That doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means that it's not primarily, it's not a primary moral ethic in which we have to follow as Christians. So if you want to go and help the Israels or the, the Palestinians, okay, talk to your church or whatever, become a missionary and go over there and help them. That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you raise money and you go and help them. But you don't give your money to ta- you don't give your money to taxes and then say, okay, since I voted for Biden and Biden sending this to this person to this country, therefore I've done my duty as a Christian. No, you haven't. You literally mm-hmm. haven't. There's no okay, argument. So, for that. so to be clear, contextually, we are actually talking about a person who has literally done what you've said. I know. I got respect for that. I totally. Yeah, but I, I, but I, this yeah, person is 100%. also saying that they think that the principle is scalable, and I think that that. Well, then send it I, in. I don't. Let me yeah, hear it. Yeah. Um, I'm serious. I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. I think, I think this. Okay, so I, I have to go to my daughter's basketball know, practice. Yeah, yeah, here, so we're off. Maybe we'll come back to this issue. Yeah, we have. But I, I do think that. Um, I think that this question of. I, I, so what I would like to leave some people with is go to the Old Testament and look up the word foreigner, and read the passages about foreigners in Israel and coming to Israel and what God commands, but. But read the broader context about what is to ask yourself the question and write, have a piece of paper, say, what is assumed or demanded of the foreigner in this context? Hmm. And I think what you'll find consistently is a lot is demanded of the foreigner. And it is at least to be on program with the nation that they've come into. And um, I've had this argument with more liberal friends consistently Hmm. where they say they just believe saying foreigner means – you have to let other people do whatever they want. And mm-hmm. my response is, no, you don't. That is not what the Old Testament teaches. However, the Old Testament does teach that if a person is coming from a place that's worse off and they want to come into the place where you live that they think has is in a better place, if they are willing to accept the terms of living in that place, yeah. the culture and structure and laws of it, then they should be welcome. Right. Right. And so – I, and I think like – and so like when you start thinking about Latino immigrants mm-hmm. coming from places like Venezuela, I think that there's a better a better argument to be made where they're like – where if if those immigrants are like, look, I'm ready to be an American. Yeah. Right? And I, but I want to live here and I want to live according to your laws. Mm-hmm. If you'll just let me in, I think the argument that we ha- we that a Christian would have to say that we would have to let them in is much stronger in that case. I think when the Palestinian situation where there's so much violence – yeah. And hatred and infiltration and terrorism. Yeah. And that is aggregated among a group of people, but very consistently. Mm-hmm. And th- this is a group of people that have rejected numerous peace offers yeah. and have instigated several wars. The idea that Israel should just go like, well, they're foreigners, so we just accept them. Right. Is not in accordance with Israel's yeah. Old Testament, if nor secular prudence, nor I think Christian principle. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I do believe when he says later, um, aren't we supposed to be peacemakers? Like, isn't that like literally the Sermon on the Mount? The answer to that is yes. Now, whether a ceasefire is the best way to accomplish that is something we'll come back to maybe another time. Yeah, yeah. because that was one of his questions. Mm -hmm. But the idea is, aren't we supposed to try to be peacemakers? The answer is yes. Yes, we are. 
right? And so first, we should we always need have to that define, on our mind. Right. We're first, and what we'll have to do when we get to that is define what peace is and, and then discuss how that relates to ceasefire in this situation. Um, yeah. You're leaving for like a week, right? So we won't yeah. get back to this. So uh, crap. Yeah. We'll have some time to reflect on these things, but one thing I just—I'm just really glad that this person uh, wrote in. Email um, us, yeah, good. yeah. We love to get the stuff back. We love mm-hmm. to talk about these kinds of views that people have in good faith, and mm-hmm. we also—I mean, I—I I do cherish even that some of us believers who are living with other people, loving different people in different contexts, mm-hmm. like are affected by our pastoral care for them. And that, that we're trying to think about things from their perspective and trying to think what justice would look like from their perspective. And then to try to sort that out. I really do think that um, there's a lot of good stuff here. And I, mm-hmm. I do really want to honor this person for the work that he's, he's trying, he and his wife are trying to do. So mm-hmm. um, I yeah, think it's that's all we have time good. for today, right. but right. I don't think that this new story and this, action in the world or this difficulty is going to get away from us anytime soon. And no. I do think because it's such a hard case, it's one worth discussing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, and I, and it's always good for people. Like it shows that he's thinking, you know, a lot of people just are just doing what everybody else is doing. And so he, he's thinking about it, setting the, the questions. And so we appreciate it. Um, anyways, we're going to discuss the rest of this in a different podcast. Probably will be yeah. longer. Uh, yeah. And the stuff that troubles him troubles me. Like, like mm-hmm. I may sound real decisive here, but like, I mean, some of these issues of like, when is enough enough, mm-hmm. especially if casualties are 50% children, if that's correct. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's literally the question I've had from the beginning, right? Like, mm-hmm. what, what, how much collateral damage is acceptable in any military conflict? Right. And, how, and what, by what principle do you decide? I don't know of an answer right. to that question. Right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know if there is an answer. Like you said, yeah. that we might not know on this side of heaven. I, I, like, right. it's, they almost seem impossible or too overwhelming to try to even figure out. But, yeah. um, okay, if, if you're listening to this, you like it, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, leave us a five-star rating, send us questions, emails, whatever. Uh, let us know what you guys think and uh we'll see you in the next one goodbye